what's your question, please? Uh, my question concerns, you know, you blame it on the white man about on how uh, we came over and take your land. I don't understand when the Japanese are coming over and they're buying it, and that's okay. I, I don't I don't see see what this is about, about the Howleys coming over. You come over to our country and, and buy up our land too. You know, it works both ways. I, I don't I don't see how you can have this rallies and everything against the white man. This is America, you know. I mean, Let me just say something to this call. This is not America. This is Polynesia. Our country was stolen. That's one of your problems. You're ignorant, woefully ignorant. Um, I do. I am. I am very active against Japanese ownership of our land. I have testified repeatedly at various commissions and at at the legislature in opposition to any foreigner owning Hawaiian land. But you caller need to learn about Hawaiian history and about where you are. And that attitude that you have is the same attitude that Joey Carter has. You think you are in America. You are not in America. You are in a colony that is in Polynesia that was forcibly taken. Just as I might add, all of Eastern Europe was forcibly taken by the Soviet Union, which Americans think is a very, very bad place. The bad, bad Soviet Union. Well, the bad, bad United States of America took Puerto Rico, it took Alaska, it stole Indian land, it took Hawaii, it took Guam, it took Micronesia, Balao, and you had better learn that history because you are the recipient of an imperialist tradition. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 805 Uncensored, a podcast about radical politics, history, music, spirituality, and more. Tonight on the show, we'll be recording part two of episode number 42, which is U.S. imperialism in Cuba and Hawaii. I'm your host, Jordan Barney. And joining us once again, we got Ian. Hey. Shenji. Hello. And Sam. Hello, hello. Welcome, guys. Hope we're all doing well. Thank you. So I think we should start off part two by doing just a little recap of where we left off. <clears throat> so a couple of the main points, we got Fulhenio Batista, which was the U.S. puppet dictator in, Cuba's, um, in Cuba. And we talked about his corrupt business ties to the American sugar company plantation owners, as well as the American mafia. And going off that fact, we also mentioned that Havana was the original Las Vegas. <clears throat> we also talked about the fact that it's really ironic many Americans associate Cuba as just being an island full of corruption because largely it was the Americans that brought the corruption there. And really, we can talk about most of Latin America. <laughs> so a lot of Latin American countries have corrupt governments to this day, but it's once again because of that tradition that was brought in by U.S. imperialist policies. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about the second Cuban Revolution first of all. So the second Cuban Revolution started in July of 1953 and continued until Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and the rebels ousted Batista, which was on New Year's Eve 1958. Uh, and that ultimately became known as the 26th of July movement, which operated under Marxist-Leninist ideology. And this ultimately became the Communist Party of Cuba in October of 1965. But a lot of things led up to that. And I want to start, uh, first of all, by talking about the students, because every revolution has students involved. Um, by 1955, there were large student demonstrations against Batista regime. Um, and they became increasingly popular all across Cuba. The government cracked down on students, actually, because they were so popular. They blacklisted them. Any students that were seeking employment opportunities, they were restricted by the government. <clears throat> in 
And in addition, uh, the government also shut down the University of Havana entirely from November 30th, 1956 until 1959, which is when the first revolutionary government took over. And during the revolution, the U.S. government, like they typically do, supplied guns, bombs, napalm, planes, tanks, and ammunition to the Batista dictatorship. <clears throat> you guys have any thoughts on the beginning of the second Cuban revolution so far? Well, I was going to say, uh, they didn't stop sending arm shipments to Batista to like 58. It's like so right they, before the revolution. Ended. Yeah, right before the triumph, they were still sending. And they only stopped because they, they saw that like, this is a done deal. Like they were going to lose. So we might as well hitch our bets with the rebels. That's kind of how they saw it. They're like, we, our guys lost. Let's see if we can win over these new guys, you know, and just. Yeah. And then obviously they didn't stop there because four years later, what we have three years later, rather we have the Bay of pigs. Yeah. When they, when they realized immediately that they weren't going to play ball, they went, well, I guess we just have to get rid of this guy and put somebody else in. Well, not to mention like 300 assassination attempts against Castro. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, and then all of this right is surrounded by the policy of containment, which was established at the end of the Truman um, administration, which containment for our listeners was a policy that was put into place where it's essentially under the philosophy of the domino principle, right? If one country falls to communism, then another country right next to it will also fall to communism. And so we we're extremely worried about that in Cuba, and the containment policy was stretched across the entire island. Crazy that it's such a terrible, evil ideology that makes people suffer, but they're like, if anyone does it anywhere, all their neighbors will start wanting to do it. (laughs) I know. Why would they want to do it if it's so unpopular? Well, in the name of U.S. imperialism, it's another justification to invade and put off our presence and our influence in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Shinji, I wanted to bring up Batista and his Bureau for the Repression of Communist Activities, his secret police. Because we mentioned part um, at the beginning of part one, I believe, that Batista murdered over 20,000 people. Yes. And ironic a bold name. The Bureau for Repression of Communist Activities. That is a bold that name. That was actually created because of the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to gain favor with the United States, Batista banned the Communist Party and the uh, initiated that organization. Yeah, and they largely created it mainly to go after Castro and Che specifically. Yeah. Yeah, there was a huge propaganda campaign, uh, mostly against Che because he was an open communist. Mm-hmm. So there was like a huge like uh, conspiracy theory by the Cuban government that like foreign like actors were being sent to Cuba to you know spread communism and destroy good Cuban values you know which was not the truth they were like he was not sent by anyone he just went with them yeah and the, the ironic part about this whole thing was the the head of the organization was actually a former Nazi hunter Mari yeah yeah <laughs> Mariano uh, Faguet, I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't remember his name. Okay. Um, and now here he is leading a militant police force against a socialist revolutionary group. I just, you know, it's very ironic. <laughs> you know, all jokes aside, though, like I mentioned, this horrific group carried out wide-scale violence, torture, public executions, and historians estimate that ultimately 
uh, about 20,000 people were killed. And these were, of, co of course, mostly socialists and communists. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about um, Castro, his legacy, Cuban socialism, and some of the positive and negatives that came out of the administration under Castro. <clears throat> so despite a fierce economic blockade, the island nation has accomplished a lot. In terms of gender equality, Cuba is the first country to sign um, and se uh, second to ratify discrimination against women convention. Women hold nearly half of the parliamentary seats in the National Assembly. In terms of health innovations, they've created the meningitis B vaccine in 1985 and later for hepatitis B and dang. They were the first country in the world to eliminate mother-to-child transmission of HIV and syphilis. For living standards, in 2014, the unemployment rate was just 2.7%. In 2015, Cuba reported a lower child mortality rate than the United States. Uh, they also have the lowest child mortality rate of any country in Latin America. Uh, in terms of education, 99% literacy rate was created within the country. That was due to a mass scale literacy program implemented by the government. Free education from elementary school to university, which the United States still does not have. Global humanitarian programs. Since 1969, there have been a total of 325,710 Cuban health workers that have participated in missions in 158 countries. Cuban's Latin American literacy campaign has helped more than 10 million students learn to read and write. Um, and we also have at the top of the list, in terms of positives, overthrowing a murderous and authoritarian dictatorship. They provided equal rights to black people and other people of color who were previously living in very segregated conditions. They actively fought against United States imperialism. <clears throat> uh, like I mentioned with Cuba's healthcare program, they're known for it. Cuba is so widely renowned for their healthcare that they've actually sent doctors all over the world to help out during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as several other public health crises that have plagued the world. <clears throat> I wonder on the, in terms of something like the human development index, how do they compare to other countries in the region? Like for instance, the Dominican Republic or Belize or like Antigua and Barbuda. I got to get back to you on that because I don't know how they're measuring that, honestly. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> in terms of infrastructure, over 600 miles of roadway was constructed across the island under Castro. And in addition, as a measure to drastically cut homelessness, the government constructed over 800 houses a month and daycare centers for children were also opened up along with faculties um, for the elderly. With regards to environmental sustainability, which I think this is extremely important for preventing imperialism, Cuba became completely self-sufficient in the 1990s. This led Cuba to become one of the world's most environmentally sustainable, green and progressive societies in the world. Um, and I also learned in listening to a recent podcast about Cuba that under Batista, Cuba was heavily deforested. And when Fidel came into power, Cuba's forest cover recovered massively. Yeah, because they cut down the sugar mm -hmm. uh, plantations. Exactly. And then, yeah, once again, all of these gains, when you consider the fact that this island country was crushed by an embargo by the United States. Yeah, and all its allies. It's not just the United States, which is the thing that doesn't get talked about enough. Like, 
the U.S. bullies other countries into not trading with Cuba. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you said that. <clears throat> yeah, it's because yes, the United States doesn't directly trade with Cuba, and that would still be devastating. But the fact that the United States then tells other countries in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, if you don't, if you trade with Cuba, we won't trade with you. You know, what country's going to choose Cuba over the United States, the world's largest market? Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some of the negatives as well. So the LGBTQ rights were persecuted under Castro. He admitted himself later in 1979 that this was a large stain on his regime and he deeply regretted it. Although I will say these days, Cuba is extremely progressive on LGBTQ issues, especially when you consider that Latin America is extremely socially conservative. <clears throat> um, there's also some authoritarian elements within the government. Any Anything else? Shinji, do you know of any other major negatives in terms of Cuba that I'm missing? Well, I'd say the political repression, there's a lot that comes with it that's pretty bad. Like, for example, there's abysmal, like, uh, what, what am I saying? There's abysmal, like, treatment of, like, newspapers and journalists. Lack of free speech, lack of yeah, press. They, yeah, the, there's none of those. Like, political freedoms, as we know them in, like, Western democracies or, like, liberal democracies, don't really exist to the same degree in Cuba. Uh, also, there are political prisoners, and there's definitely some shady stuff that goes on, and there's a lot of corruption. At least in modern-day Cuba, there's a lot of corruption in some sectors of mm -hmm. the government. Uh, but honestly, the biggest issue I'd say with Cuba... Oh, I, oh wait. Uh, let me. I guess this does have to do with corruption and repression, but the, it, the economy is incredibly inefficient. And it's been inefficient for a really long time due to it hasn't really evolved past the 1970s, like Soviet centralized like system. So it's still very inefficient. What is the, what does the economy primarily consist of? Is it tourism? Uh, that is the now Cuba's biggest uh, moneymaker. Yeah. It's now tourism. Gotcha. And what do they have as far as like, um, like agricultural or industrial, um, that industry? That's the problem. Cuba, ever, well, it used to be a lot better, of course, during the Soviet times because they had subsidies and they had a trade partner. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Cuba's economy like took a huge dip. But it's been mostly able to recover to pre-Soviet uh, collapse days. But their biggest industry now is tourism. Uh, but as part of like their what I was saying that they're so inefficient. They don't. Per Most of Cuba's food is ex like it's imported from other countries. Cuba doesn't make enough food to sustain itself, and it's not because it can't. It just is in is so inefficient that it just cannot provide enough food. All the food is sold, like to be exported. It, it's barely ever used in Cuba. A lot of the machinery is very old. To like the the farming machinery is very old. Uh, there's not the technical expertise that in other countries that exists. Uh, there's also a really bureaucratic structural system to do anything. You know, there's a lot. It's all centrally planned. You know, that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying, that it's still stuck in that Soviet central planning. Uh, as for industry, honestly, it's it's 
pretty abysmal. Like Cuba's industry again after the Soviet collapse, a lot of them there was no spare parts, there was no mach new machinery because they just couldn't buy it. They couldn't buy it from the U.S. And now the Soviet Union was gone, and they didn't have the hard currency to buy a lot of it. So a lot of the factories closed down. A lot of there's still some, of course, but it's the industry has recovered somewhat since the '90s. But it's still pretty bad. If anything, I'd say the best industry in sense of thriving and, and progressing is probably the Cuban pharmaceutical industry is still really strong mm. considering like it's economic standing and like it's budget, like it's really good, but everything else I'd say is pretty weak, unfortunately. So my thought would be that if you can't trade with the Western bloc that you would in the modern day, at least you would want to go to China with them being so wealthy now. Um, and are they doing that, or or if yes. not, why? Yes, they do. Their relationship with Cuba and China, for the most part, is is pretty good. They don't have any like issues. But China isn't really. It's not the same. It's not the same level of solidarity as like during the Soviet times. Mm -hmm. China and Cuba have never particularly uh, been close. They've never been. Enemies? They've never had bad relations. But they've never been close because Cuba chose the Soviet Union in the Sino-Soviet split, and they never kind of gave that up. Like that, Cuba never, mm. yeah, never sided with them. Actually, that's one of the reasons that like Che had like some disagreements with, like, was so disliked by the Soviet government, is that he was becoming sort of like a Marxist. Uh, I mean, not Marxist, uh, a Maoist. No yeah, when he was trying to do like his Latin American revolutions, and they did not like that very much. Man, that Sino-Soviet split—that's a hell of a thing. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really messed up like everything. Actually, like the one of the main reasons that Che was unsuccessful in his revolution in Bolivia was because the Bolivian Communist Party would just not back him because the Soviet Union told him not to back him because he was doing Maoist like tactics or whatever and they just were not having it and that led to him yeah be, being stranded in bolivia just for our listeners can you guys just um explain the sino-soviet split like why that even happened yeah so after joseph stalin died um nikita khrushchev denounced stalin because uh, stalin was a piece of shit <laughs> um and um mao who had been a fan of Stalin, wasn't a fan of that. And a lot of other countries also weren't fans of that. Like Albania is a good example of a country that also was like, you're being revisionist by doing that. Um, but there are also deeper issues that like Russia and China have historically been enemies. And so even in the modern day and like through the post-Russian or post-Chinese Civil War era, they, uh, whenever Russia and China have gone along, it's always been more of friends of convenience than anything else. Um, historically, they've always had a lot of territorial disputes. Those were big during the Cold War. They've mostly been resolved now, but there were a lot back then. And they've had disputes over like Mongolia and, um, and they've just, they've never, never really gone very well along historically. And so as after Stalin died, as the Soviet Union moved ideologically further away from where Mao was, they kind of formed two different spheres of communism. Mm. 
Yeah, like Mar Marxist-Leninism versus Maoism. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of brings me into a question for you guys regarding socialism um, as, it re as it relates to decolonization. So what, what role do you think that socialism plays in the decolonization process? Whoever wants to take that first, it's for everyone. So I think that nationalist movements are often, not always, or like not even a majority possibly, but are often tied in with leftist movements. And I think the reason for that is, you see like Ireland's a good example, uh, where a lot of Irish Republicans were also socialist. The IRA. Um, yeah, and, uh, and like not all the IRA, but a lot of the IRA. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a reason for that is, is because they kind of have similar goals, right? They're looking for liberation of the working class and liberation of the country from oppressive higher up forces. And like, if you are looking at something as we need to liberate our country from this imperial force, well, the logical next step is to say, we need to liberate the working class from capitalism. Mm -hmm. Or if you're looking at something as we need to liberate the working class from capitalism, well, that's going to be hard to do when you're a colony, right? And so I feel like those things are natural allies. I think uh, socialism and anti-capitalism in general helps uh, sever the links between the colonial country and the colonizer country uh, through just severing them from their economic uh, interests. What do you mean by that? I mean, like, by nationalizing key industries and giving power to the workers that mm. you no longer are reliant. Well, we're talking about, like, neocolonization and stuff, where uh, the means of production are usually controlled by the colonizer country. Right. Where and under socialism, or the direct goal is to take back the economic power. And so I think it's more effective as a decolonizing strategy than just nationalism itself. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. <clears throat> okay, I wanted to ask you guys about the Cuban defectors too, because there's always been this kind of narrative in mainstream media that People leaving Cuba are just fleeing a communist dictatorship. But, you know, when you actually look more into it, the, the data that I've at least encountered suggests that most of the people that fled Cuba were the wealthy landowning class, and they were not actually poor or middle class people largely. And that, that seems to be the case with a lot of revolutions, right? And Kropotkin actually writes about this quite significantly in The Conquest of Bread, how a revolution is ushered in. It first starts with the workers seizing the means of production, and then ultimately once that happens, the wealthy and the rich people, the people that are completely ideological opposed to the revolution, flee. And it, is, th is that the case in Cuba, Shinji? Because that's, that's what I'm gathering so, yes, but no. So, basically, in the early days of the revolution, so from 1959 to around 65, let's say, the majority of people who fled Cuba were upper class, uh, like bourgeois individuals or upper middle class professionals. 
So they're the first big wave to leave Cuba. Like a, like a huge number of people fled. That's actually small tangent. They that's actually a big issue they hate the revolution is that they had a huge brain drain in the early days. But um oh like the anyways, intellectual professional class left. Yeah, like all the all, well not even only that, just like anybody who could manage a factory they didn't know like there was nobody left. No no like engineers, no overseers like there was nobody they all had all left or a lot of them let's say so that was the first wave and then i'd say after that around the late like 70s mid 70s all the way until around now it's been more regular working class people like after the mariel boat lift like that was predominantly just working class cubans mm-hmm. who fled uh, who were just anti-communists or just people who just were disillusioned. And I'd say it got really, like, bad in the sense of, like, it was mostly just normal people. Bad in the sense, like, a lot of people were leaving um, in the 90s and post-90s because it was mostly due to the really hard conditions during the special period after the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. Like, there was just shortages of everything like things were really rough and i'd say that most people left cuba during the time i like for example me and my family left cuba in the early 2000s because things were really rough mm-hmm. um so i'd say yes like a let's say probably like 30 percent of cubans that left were in the early days and they were the professionals you know the traditional big capitalists the factory owners the the la- large landowners like they left mm-hmm. a lot of them but after that it, it's been mostly just average working class people or just anti-communists or anti-revolutionaries um got it so it's more, mainly like as time has gone on it's it's not really as a result of the activities that came out of the revolution but mainly just deteriorating living conditions that yeah yeah which is the strategy of the embargo is to make life so difficult that the revolution will fail right and cuba's just another example right of the united states making living conditions terrible in a country and then those people fleeing to the united states yeah you see that with afghanistan and a lot of other countries too yeah it's but the, the, the whole strategy since the beginning of the embargo has been to, if we can't beat them, we'll just starve them out. That's kind of been the, the strategy. Like, oh, we, we're not going to do direct action. We're not going to go and overthrow the government, but it will, we'll, we'll starve it out. And it obviously hasn't worked in, as they intended because so, Cuba's still around, the government's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has definitely made life for the average Cuban really hard. And it, and it is partially fault to the Cuban government's mismanagement of the economy, but a lot of it has to do with just the intention of the embargo is to starve the Cuban economy. And it has succeeded in the degree that it's made it really hard for normal people to get basic necessities that if there was no embargo, they could just, the government and the country could just easily purchase and trade with the United States to be able to purchase these things. But since that's not available, there's shortages. So and over 60 years, you know, it starts piling up for some people. Mm-hmm. You've, you've probably heard this from like the, the neoliberal and conservative side of things. Uh, I know I've heard it and I think it's quite annoying. Um, 
where people will say that, oh, there is no blockade. It was lifted 21 years ago. The embargo's over. The Cuban people are just, you know, in control of their own destiny. It's it's their fault that they're suffering. Yeah, a lot of people like to make this weird lie that the embargo doesn't exist or that Cuba self-embargoes itself, like any country would ever self-embargo itself, you know? <laughs> um. That's a pretty but, stupid decision. <laughs> yeah, people, a lot of, especially a lot in the Cuban American like community, will say like, "Oh, Cuba doesn't have an embargo; it's just self-embargoing itself." It's like, what does what does that even mean? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, the embargo still actually it it the embargo uh, was it like reinstated under Trump? Because I don't quite understand. Uh. So what happened was the embargo, you know, as, as we know it, existed from time of Kennedy, I think in 60, 61, 62, mm -hmm. all the way until the 90s during Bill Clinton, they reformed the embargo. They changed some stuff to allow some, like, for example, before they couldn't sell, like, med medicine or humanitarian aid to Cuba. Right. We could, yeah, Cubans couldn't even buy medical supplies from the U.S. Nothing. That's, nothing could be bought. So fucking but, morally uh, bankrupt. Not even... Not not even for disasters or anything. The United States could not do that. But then with Bill Clinton, they got rid of that and they they loosened it up a little bit. But it was still the embargo. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but and Bill, they Bill got Clinton even... was not going to normalize fucking trade relations with Cuba. <laughs> no, definitely not. And then in during Obama, they loosened it up a little bit more to allow like uh, you know um, tourism and to visit Cuba and stuff and so you could bring products back from Cuba to the United States. That, that was like a huge thing. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, right after Trump got in office, he reinstituted everything that was taken off the previous embargo and even more so. So actually the Cuban embargo that sits, that exists right now is tougher than it has ever been. Holy shit! Like it's, it, it, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's even imaginable how you could make it worse, but it's actually worse. Like, yeah, it it, it's actually, crazy. Yeah, like for example, like, uh, I don't know if you heard, if a if a boat, like a cargo ship, docks in Cuba, it cannot dock in the United States for ninety days. For example, so if you're like a ship that it's stops in Cuba. Yeah, like you can't have deals or, or sell any products in the United States for three months. Or if you're a company in Cuba, I mean you're a company and you have any sort of investment in Cuba, you're not allowed to sell or do business in the United States. Which, of like, course, encourages big shippers like Maersk or Samsung to not do business with Cuba. Exactly. So what happens is Cuba is restricted to a few countries and few companies who have no interest in trading with the United States, which realistically, how many of those is there? <laughs> like, not very many. Yeah, well, especially like, if you're in the, the world. Yeah, and yeah. especially if you're in the vicinity of Cuba, like most ships that are in the vicinity of Cuba are would be uh, would without this would be stopping there, like on their way to or on their way back from the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this includes like car cargo ships, like. Uh, Cruise ships, anything, anything that docks in Cuba cannot be in the United States for ninety days. I think also planes, like I think 
planes that haven't been designated to like go to Cuba if they land there, they can't land in the United States. Like it's re- it's I'm telling you, it's really bad. Basically, it's everything possible you can think of to screw Cuba over. They do it. And a lot of people will like to bring up the fact that, well, Cuba technically can buy from the United States. And they're, again, technically correct. Cuba can buy stuff from the United States, but it has to be through hard currency. It can't be through credit. So, for example, if you are a country, you could buy a piece of chicken, let's say, from another any other country regularly through credit. You know, I'll pay you back, you know. But with the United States, it's either cash or nothing. That's how it works with the United States. And Cuba doesn't have a hard uh, hard currency reserves like to just buy what it needs from the United States. And also it's very difficult. So it's whatever whoever's willing to sell to Cuba. So yeah, it's it's pretty rough. Uh, Trump made it really really hard. Yeah. And so the ninety days rule. rule. Go ahead, Ian. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. The ninety days rule with the ships was that Trump's rule or was that an older thing? I think that was older, but it got like it was taken off and then reimposed. Okay. Actually, I don't particularly like um this person, but I recommend watching Bannon Panada's video on the embargo. He actually did a good job on it. And he explained, like, all the restrictions that come with the embargo. It's actually a good video. I'll have to check that out. I'll drop a link in the description. Okay, guys, I wanted to change topics now. We've been talking about Cuba for a little bit. Let's talk about Hawaii now. So... The 1893 overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom and the annexation of Hawaii, along with background information about the islands. Sam, I want you to do a lot of the talking here because I don't know that much about Hawaii at all. So basically, okay. we start with first contact. <clears throat> yeah, let's uh, let yeah, let's give some background information because really Perfect. to understand the overthrow, you need to understand uh, how the West has influenced Hawaii from its very emergence into the world uh by the world i mean the world economy at large not it's been been uh populated since around a thousand a.d but really since captain cook got there in 1768 uh, has it become a thing in the world imagination and people started coming there uh they brought with them what you would expect from white people disease and guns um and so soon after contact that many uh there started being mass die-offs but during the contact there was uh <laughs> all right they've been warring for hundreds of years to really between the islands of hawaii and maui but Hawaii often split up apart into different districts and reformed and went to war with Maui. It's been hundreds of years of on and off war. And so bringing of disease and guns changed this dramatically. Uh, Kamehameha was really adept at acquiring guns and using white people to gain more power, basically. Uh, 
he kidnapped a, a couple of um a couple of white sailors and made them explain how to use cannons and stole their ships and really transformed warfare in Hawaii to basically wipe out a lot of the populations of Maui and Oahu. Um, but how they acquired these guns is they're beginning into the world market. And they begin to understand how to trade with white people. They know white people have a lot of useful things they want. They During first contact, they kept stealing nails off the boats because they were much sharper and much more durable than the shark teeth weapons they had have. But, and so they knew the advantages of modern technology at the time, especially in their on and off constant warfare. And so these guns really helped unify the islands. And with uh, Captain Vancouver helped solidify what is a modern state. And this really, impacted the mind, especially of the the elites of the culture, that they were a modern monarchy that deserves just as much respect and attention as any monarchy in the world. And this is the time Britain is conquering the world and France, just these huge empires. They thought that they they should have that same respect. Uh, so after the unification, there began a number of different trade agreements, specifically with sandalwood. Uh, I believe you sent me a link talking about the number of fires being caused here, mm -hmm. especially on the Big Island on the west side. Yeah, the Hawaiian and islands are exactly, drying out. Yeah, I knew exactly why. It's it's been taught to us since, well, some of us who paid attention. I, um, that back there, there was huge dry forests of sandalwood. And when Hawaii merged into the world economy, they knew that this was gangbuster money. That's that chop it here and sell it to China or sell it to the United States. And many white businessmen would help them along their way. Uh, Kamehameha actually made a monopoly of this and, uh, all profit would go to him until he died, in which none of the elite took up the business. And a number of them went into huge amounts of debt, having to sell their land to people who were more profitable than them, who had more money. And usually that was the missionary families who had arrived not long earlier. Um, after Kamehameha won, um, his son, which was, who was not old enough to reign, and his mother ended the kapu system, which is a huge, was a huge deal because it had been their life, their religion, their whole way of viewing the world for thousands, for at least thousands years. Totally just upturned by the elites of their kingdom. Um, and they didn't adopt Christianity. This was them not wanting to practice the kapu system anymore at least the elites and then a year later a number of missionaries from the united states boston specifically came over interesting 
and taught them Christianity. And many of them had bought into this because remember, so many people were dying of disease. So many people have died from just constant warfare that to them, their old gods weren't protecting them anymore. And it seemed like these white people were protected from disease and had immense power. And so their religion, they believed, must have given them power. And in many ways, they were kind of right because they gave them certain amount of respect in the eyes of the colonial powers gobbling up Pacific Islands at the time and kept gobbling up. Like throughout the time they even became a state, the big powers of Europe were always a threat. And so the hundred years that they were a, an independent kingdom, they were always trying to stave off colonization. Um, um, but during the early time, the number of white missionaries noticed that sugarcane grew readily here. It was thought to have first been brought here by the first uh, migrants from the Marquesas Islands. Um, the first sugar mill was made on the island of Lanai in 1902 and quickly turned a profit. Um, but missionaries at the time could only get so much land, but the profits that were coming in from this were excellent. And so they needed a they needed labor. First, they used many of the many of the Hawaiians who needed work, but they were they worked well, but they were also dying off at a rapid rate, uh, and they didn't quite rely on the um, on the work as much as imported labor does. They brought like they could live off the land. They had family to live with. They didn't necessarily need to work the sugarcane. Uh, so they first brought in, in 1850 um, workers from China who also were brought into the West Coast to work the railroads. And they were regular use at the time. But another way they brought in they brought in workers is uh, what is called blackbirding. Do you know what blackbirding is? No, I never heard of that actually. Um, blackbirding is um, basically kidnapping whole populations off of usually islands. Uh, There's huge. Some islands were completely depopulated, like the Gilbert, some of the Gilbert Islands and some of the Line Islands. Holy fuck! And yeah, and they're usually brought over to sugar plantations in the Pacific run by Europeans in Tahiti and Hawaii and Australia as well. And these people were, they were basically slaves or really poorly paid laborers. Um, and oftentimes they were just dumped. There was no chance of going back home. They're just kidnapped or told a lie about getting rich or helping support their family with material goods, and then just dumped on these sugar plantations. 
so they did that for a long while, though it was never the best source of of labor because uh, you had to actually go out and kidnap people. Uh, so they continued more contract labor from Asia. They brought in Japanese, Filipinos, uh, Koreans. And all this really made the landowning white Howleys just filthy rich. Um, but this was even before like the big, like, well, not all of it. Um, but one of the major things that granted these white owners huge amounts of land was called the Great Mahele. And, uh, in order to do business and enter the capitalist world, uh, you need to implement some form of private property. And which, for the most part, property in the Hawaiian Islands was nationalized or communal. Um, most people lived off the land of that they worked off of and the lii lived off their work as most elites do but it was usually more communal and more nationalist but you know in order for white people to own land they need to be private property to buy and so the monarchy proposed what's called great mahele in which they allocated the lands into proportions. One third would go to the, the monarchy. One third would go to the elites and the other, one third would go to the maka'ainana or the people. Unfortunately, this came with a number of, um, number of specifications and you got to claim the land. In order to do that, you need to be able to read English, first of all. Uh, you also need to be able to have the news get to you. You also need to be able to actually get there while supporting your dying family. So many of people just never claimed their land and was bought directly from the government to these giant sugarcane operations. Uh, America. So we, talked about, uh, <laughs> we talked about the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. Uh, there was an extension to that called the Tyler Doctrine, which basically said that, you know, the United States would defend Hawaii from any other European. And it's the same thing, but for Hawaii. And this really pushed them into American orbit quite a bit, because right after that, a man named Paulette tried to take Hawaii for Great Britain. And it wasn't until a U.S. warship showed up that their invasion was pulled off. This made, this did two things later on. Because there was no real fighting. The king gave over sovereignty to Great Britain and saying, this guy Paulette's crazy, Lord George Paulette, and uh, we 
surrender sovereignty over you, knowing that you will give sovereignty back over this just blatant mistake. And this would affect how they saw the overthrow later on. It also pushed them more into the hands of the uh, United States, especially when um, King Kalakaua came into office. He was, before that, there was an election between him and Queen Emma, which when I say elections, there was a, the King Kamehameha, the Kamehameha dynasty died off. And then to elect a new monarch, you had to be a member of the royal family, obviously. So it wasn't, you know, democratic, but it's sort of democratic. But Kalakaua was backed by the United States and Queen Emma was backed by Britain. And immediately after this election, their riots broke out in the streets, uh, you know, because their Queen Emma had lost. But the United States and the United Kingdom both landed forces on the island to quell the violence. So again, we see more parallels to what's going to happen next because the United States has already put forces on the islands to quell violence and protect American property. Private property is a concept uh, that's like non-existent before colonization, obviously. Like it's the same as many, many cultures where colonizers come into a country, an island, a territory, etc., implement their policies and the people that live there are left completely like, what the fuck? Like, we've never lived our lives this way. This is a completely foreign concept to us. And Hawaii is no exception. No, not at all. Uh, King Kalakaua was probably the most European-American king that there was. He even had his form of manifest destiny in which he tried to create what is called the Polynesian Confederation uh, with the King of Samoa and tried to stick his fingers into a really huge mess in which the United States, Britain, and Germany almost went to war over Samoa. Shit. <laughs> uh, it's called the Samoan Crisis. It's fascinating history, but... Imagine. <laughs> yeah. But... This and a number of other things, like he spent a huge tons of money. He did a world tour. He had extravagant coronation. He rebuilt the royal palace with an extravagant royal palace. Again, they wanted to make themselves you know, as much respected as a European monarchy, a European state. And though this took a lot of money away from... He was seen as hugely corrupt and the white business owners who were making huge amounts of money. But, you know, every now and then the United States would put on treaties and duties and they would try to balance out um, their budgets by working out more deals with the United States uh, to, you know, have special relationships with them to sell their sugar. Uh I was going to say. 
But um, th this massive spending of money, along with new new tariffs from the United States, caused the white business owners to rebel against Kalakawa and um, really just destroy any chance of native rule and basically make him a puppet of the sugar owners. Oh, what does that really, sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder where and, that happened. <laughs> yeah, this was Are we talking about before? Um, uh, I'm sorry, Batista. Batista, that's his name. Are we talking about before Batista now? Oh, yeah, this is, is this is, stuff sounding in Hawaii? Yeah, this is 1880s. 18... Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so they made him sign a constitution underneath, like, by threat of gunpoint. Many of the... Well, it's called... Yeah, gunboat um, diplomacy. No, even closer to that, they've had the the bayonets like pointed at him. It's called the bayonet constitution because the king in his office by many of the ministers that got into government made them sign this new constitution, which, which uh, limited suffrage because you could get, there was a certain form of suffrage of local uh, elections but they now made it restricted to males of the kingdom. Uh, only Hawaiians and Americans residing of the age of 21 and over. So this meant none of the Asians that resided in the islands. And by passing a minimum qualification of $3,000 of property and minimum of 6,600 to vote for the House of Nobles. I wonder how many Hawaiians qualified for that, Sam. <laughs> Only those who had interest in the sugar business. So, you know, the ones they like. Yeah, this disqualified a whole bunch of natives. It, not, no Asians got the vote. Um, so when, her, when Kalakaua's sister became queen, she tried to roll back some of these measures. Uh, she didn't roll back a ton of them. There was still a minimum qualification, just cheaper. She tried to gain back royal powers of appointment. Um, and by this time, the sugar plantations and sugar planters had gotten everybody they need into places of power. They basically controlled the government and the monarch was a puppet, and the puppet was trying to smack the hand. And so they flat out denied her and called upon um, the United States minister to the Hawaiian kingdom, John Levitt Stevens, who was in Pearl Harbor, who called upon the warships stationed at Pearl Harbor to come on, come ashore and protect American lives and property. But really they didn't do that. They stood right outside of Iolani palace where not many American lives or property were and threatened basically to destroy the whole government. 
none of them were they came in was a, a neutral stance but the message was pretty clear and so to avoid bloodshed and that what they thought would happen as in the Paulette affair was that the United States after ceding sovereignty to them and not to these sugar planters would see the injustice of what happened and give sovereignty right back as what happened in the Paulette affair. And this kind of did happen. Uh, the United States sent at the time, well, okay, when the overthrow happened, there was President Harrison, who was a huge like proponent of Manifest Destiny, was in office. He's the one who appointed uh, James G. Blaine and John L. Levitt Stevenson, knowing that they wanted at least they were probably happy with the puppet, but they want to control over Hawaii and its ports. And so this was a huge, wasn't a huge part of their administration, but a definite goal of their administration. But that had changed over just around the time that the overthrow did happen. And the new president, um, who was it again? President Cleveland. Immediately, the sugar plantation offered the United States to annex them, and Cleveland denied this and sent a a diplomat, James Blount or Blunt, to survey the situation. And he came back with no. He knew what happened. He said. United States diplomatic and military representatives had abused their authority and were responsible for the change of government. Minister Stevens was immediately recalled and military command of the forces in Hawaii were sent off of commission. Uh, Cleveland had decided that the United States should restore the queen, but the provisional government that had overthrown it and the Republicans in the, the United States pulled the ballsiest and just most ridiculous move. They said, you don't have the right to interfere with an independent government's affair. And we will remain in control of Hawaii. <laughs> just the balls of that. You don't have the right to interfere with what you just interfered with to put us in power. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Colin has your mindset. So for four years, the United Hawaii became what's known as the Republic of Hawaii underneath President Dole, uh, Stan Sanford Dole. Who Is that Dole the in the fruit company? Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly them. Oh, so United uh, Fruit? Yes, he was the cousin of James Dole, who started his uh, plantations on Hawaii. He's the, known as the Pineapple King. Yep. <laughs> and merged with a number of companies and became Standard Fruit, who instituted a Banana Republic in Honduras. It's all connected. You see the dots. <laughs> <laughs> bunch of strings and arrows and it's real 
Yeah, so much um, fucking overlap. <laughs> <laughs> so during the Spanish-American War, the Republic of Hawaii officially was neutral, but in practice, it supported the United States. It was used as a military base, winning widespread approval of the Americans. And uh, so when... 1898 was called the Newlands Resolution, which is a joint resolution between Congress and House. Had nothing, no Hawaiians were involved. Just declared that, yeah, we'll annex the Republic of Hawaii. And that is how the United States was had annexed Hawaii. And, but that's only the overthrow. You know, that's only part of colonization and imperialism. So the ultimate annexation happens in 1898, correct? Yes. Okay, and that's the exact same year that the Spanish-American War breaks out. Yes, and it's basically Hawaii was used as a base, a jumping-off point to the Philippines and Guam. And basically, if Hawaii was not, it would be much harder for them to have remained in control of those far-flung territories and caused such devastating just... the. U.S. Filipino War, the yeah, US we don't Moral talk about wars that. Are just the most awful, disturbing things you would ever read about if you do. Just, yeah, the American Filipino on both sides, but yeah. American instigation definitely. Yeah, it's really bad. The stuff that happens in the Philippines gets totally like talked over or whitewashed. It, like they don't even teach it in most schools. Like they just go, yeah, we and we went to the Philippines, and then that's it. Or it's like one sentence. It's like, and then after the war, there was a rebellion, and then it ended. <laughs> An occupation until 1945. Well, yeah, not most people don't know how bloody our control over that those islands were. I mean, we were at war with them, on and off for the rebels and their inlands and the South Islands for. At least 20 years and probably off and on longer with a number of rebel groups. It's been just, it is really bloody. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, they do not teach it nearly enough about that. Yeah, and like you said, um, when they do, it's very whitewashed, Shinji. Yeah, it's it's rough. Especially since we, like, we controlled the Philippines as, like, a colony until after World War II. The only time we didn't directly control it was during the short period where it was controlled by the Japanese. But right after World War II is when we let them go. It's still probably considered a neo-colony because we control still much of their economic base. Yeah, but they're trying to move away more towards China, and I don't know how well it's going to work oh, out. For them. Well, I was just going to say they're getting a new colonial master who like, yeah. <laughs> has control over their power grid and stuff. Yeah, it's like they're moving away from the U.S., but I don't know if embracing China is necessarily the best idea. It reminds me of my tweet earlier, and I was like, leftists that unironically will say they're anti-imperialist and then support China and Russia. <laughs> I, I really don't get, like, Russia, like at all, like how could like it's like such like, everyone goes like well colonial oppressors like it's literally because they're geopolitical Russia? rivals to the U.S. 
Yeah, it's just we don't like America. So yeah, they'll defend Assad, which ba baffles me. Dude, I've seen oh them defend fucking Saddam Hussein. <laughs> you mean the CIA guy? Saddam Hussein, the CIA guy, they'll defend. Yeah, exactly. Ay, ay. Sorry, anyways. <clears throat> well, that was the overthrow, but after that, the U.S. Uh, remained in control of um, the territory, and what solidified there, well, it's called the Big Five Oligarchy, which was a five huge sugar companies. Um, Turner, the Attorney General of Hawaii, Edmund Person Dole, referring to the Big Five in 1903, said, there is a government in this territory which is centralized to an extent unknown in the United States and probably almost as centralized as it was in France under Louis the 16th? 14th. Yeah, Louis the 14th. The one who got executed was the 16th. The Sun King was the 14th. <laughs> which one are we talking about? Yeah. Um, 14th. And it, 14, yeah. Okay. And fucking 40 years later, things haven't much changed. In 1937, Edward J. Egger, and this is from the book Fighting in Paradise by Gerald Horn. If you ever get a chance to read a book on Hawaii, read this one. It is excellent. It has a great description of labor history and the Communist Party that existed here. Excellent, excellent book. But this is one passage from there. Um, of the, this is from Edward J. Egger, regional director of the newly minted National Labor Relations Board, was astonished when he saw a number of the labor, laborers more like slaves than free people. He thought, I have seen them remove their hats as officers of the big five corporations pass. They live hand to mouth, surrounded by 2,000 miles of water. They have no chance to change their jobs or get away from the present environment. They speak in mumbles and undertones. And in 1940, a congressional visitor concluded, after three years of living there, if there's any true picture of fascism anywhere in the world than the Hawaiian Islands, I do not know the definition of it. Interesting. For 40 years, they were underneath this just capitalist nightmare of sugar plantation work and sugar ownership. Um, and they were usually kept in this by what's called a race hierarchy in which certain races would get paid more, get certain privileges, and pitted against each other when one tried to rise up. They're usually always – there are certain unions, but they're always among certain ethnic groups. And if one tried to rise up, another ethnic group would come in and crush them or as scabs or strike breakers. Yeah, divide and conquer. Yeah, Sam – you know, we're uh, big fans of hierarchy, especially racial hierarchy, being anarchists. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the purest form, says my <laughs> uncle. Fuck. <clears throat> uh, uh, and in this time, they banned the Hawaiian language and many of its cultural practices, but Hawaiian was kind of still used, but usually along among the locals and in this environment, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, Filipinos, Puerto Ricans, Hawaiians, 
Okinawans, I got to be specific. Okinawans do not like to be called Japanese. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, they got, they got, they were basically like the Hawaiian Islands of Japan. Mm, they were like yeah. their own kingdom, and then they got taken over by Japan. Yeah, like, Japan was also a colonial power for a while. Yeah, yeah. they had well, the Imperial well, Army. Well, this is during, I think, the early 20th century or late 19th century. The Ryukyu Islands got like, there was a kingdom, and it got like invaded by Japan. Yeah. And they'd just been occupied ever since. Gotcha. Oh, now it's part so of Japan. Out of, this, out of this huge mixture emerged what I like to call the local culture, which emerged pidgin, the language, which is a, might say is a dialect, but it has its own grammar, has its own ways of spelling. It's uh, it's really fun. It's a fun language. Well, sounds like like uh, the word pidgin means like it's a mixture of languages. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. But it's actually pigeon is a creole. <laughs> it's because we just use the word pigeon to describe the language that was created, but it's been passed down multiple generations. So it's actually a creole. Mm -hmm. It's a linguistic um, nomenclature that really nobody needs to know. So let me ask a question. I've heard that in the last couple of decades or so, They've tried to revive a lot of traditional Hawaiian cultural practices and clothing and language and stuff. Has that been like successful or? Oh, it's been moderately successful. I mean, we're no longer banning the Hawaiian language. That's um, good. Um, place names are going back to many of them, their original Hawaiian place names. Um, but then again, lot of it's kind of um just window dressing to mask the colonization and yeah it's performative how much of that is like a grassroots thing and how much of that is like this is better for tourism that's a really good question uh, i think most of it is honestly a grassroots thing um when it becomes better for tourism is usually later they they, they begin to take out the fun parts and present it to the rest of the world. Yeah, because you don't want to go to Hawaii and experience Hawaii. You want to go to Hawaii and experience Las Vegas. Yeah, you want Elvis. Well, you don't want Hawaii. You want what you think Hawaii is going to be like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You want Hawaii for white people. <laughs> yeah. No, you want your true. expectation of Hawaii. Don't want it to be I mean, too brown, now. You want it to be a little Hawaii bit white. Hawaii is sold to the world. Hawaii is sold like probably the most propagandized place in the world. Everybody wants to come to Hawaii. It's bourgeois paradise, literally. Like a place you go after you die, it's reward for being good as a bourgeois person is how it's seen. It's fucked up. So, so going back to the Hawaiian culture and language, it, it, has that become like has Hawaiian language returned in some places to be like a common, like you in common use, or is that still very like academia? Um, where you'd hear it spoken fluently is usually in a university. Um, oh, sometimes really? you'll hear it like some uh, among the protesters. Sometimes you'll hear like. It's out there. I 
it's no longer frowned upon. Um, I have some friends from Ireland, and you hear very similar things about the Irish language that, like, people are learning, everyone learns it in school now, um, but people don't really speak Irish on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's basically like that. Okay, uh, there are efforts, but the efforts don't usually grab any monetary, like, incentive towards it. Okay. Was there ever a strong uh, independence movement in Hawaii? Um, strong? Well, it depends on what you mean by strong. If you mean like politically, internationally strong. Uh, uh, like more like at home, like were Hawaiians like very adamant for independence or did they just submit to? Oh, no, they did not submit at all. For There is actually an armed rebellion after the overthrow that got crushed. Um, there have been many petitions. Uh, they have many have never wanted to be part of the United States. So yeah. many have also profited off of it, but many have not. It's always a complex. Usually, the elites of the race do profit off of it, of whereas course. the poor do not. Yeah, it's kind of similar. Well, I'd say I wouldn't say it's worse because it's you know colonialism is bad no matter what mm -hmm. but like it's similar to the puerto rican problem where you know i don't think puerto ricans have ever wanted to be part of the u.s but yeah. as, as time has gone by they've just accepted it and they just want to now just to get some sort of privileges you know because at least hawaii is a state like puerto rico is just a territory and they can't, they don't even have like the same you know, political power or political representation is Hawaii, mm -hmm. which is, yeah. and it's been for like the same amount of time, more or less, they've been controlled, which is crazy. It's just like, bullshit, frankly, because you don't even need a fucking passport to go to Puerto Rico. Like they have yeah, such normal well, relations. Well, it's part of America. America. It's yeah, the United States. Why is it not a state? And, well, and that's a pet me. Well, yeah, brown we, and they speak Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> well, like, no, so Hawaii and Puerto Rico. People in Hawaii. Exactly, like Hawaii and Puerto Rico became territories that, um, like within a couple of years of each other. I don't know exact the exact years, but and well, Puerto Rico, year. I think, has the same year, and Puerto Rico, I think, has even a bigger population oh, than Hawaii. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I and the answer is because Hawaii has a lot of white English speaking people, and Puerto Rico has a lot of brown Spanish speaking people. Also, yeah. Hawaii is a very important geopolitical position. It's like yeah, uh, a perfect, like, military. It's basically an aircraft carrier, but it can never be sunk. 10% of our population. Are military or military adjacent that 10% of the people living on this island are here specifically to make sure we stay like part of the United States yeah it's it's like Samoa or uh, Guam where it's like South Korea native populations but they're only important for the US because their geopolitical interests like it's a perfect military base in the middle of the pacific but we're just there so, for peace right yeah we're just there to expand american culture and 
you know values throughout East Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you guys think about the new um, trade deal between the UK, Australia, and the US? It's definitely interesting. It's interesting that France got very upset about it. <laughs> the but, losing a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, but and they're embarrassed. I I kind of understand it. I I because I I guess I understand Australia because they have to become di- like they have to diversify their trading partners because they're so reliant on China. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know so much. Like it's not really beneficial for the U.S. or the UK. It's more of like for Australia because they're it, and they're mostly just doing it just to have like a military. They're they're I think they're gonna try to do like a military agreement or something, right? Yeah. So they. They um, str- the big part of it is that they struck a deal to build nuclear submarines, uh, not yes. nuclear armed submarines, but nuclear powered submarines. Yeah. Um, which the reason France is upset is because France already had a deal with Australia to build diesel electric submarines that uh, Australia is going back on now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so they're gonna lose out on a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, but the the I foresee. In the next couple of, in the next decade or two decades, as China's influence continues to broaden internationally, and as the United States' influence wanes, it's gonna try to create a containment of China, and we're already seeing it. You know, it's, like if you look at rhetoric about China ten years ago, it was irrelevant. China was basically irrelevant to the average American. It was just a country that we got our stuff from. Mm-hmm. And now no, it's, people were already talking about China in 2011. Yeah, but it wasn't to the level that it is now. Now it's yeah, like no, now it wasn't as much fear like, like, yeah, People now were like, realizing it was going to be a problem. Yeah, back in 2011. like 2011, people were like, "Oh, we owe them a lot of money. <laughs> like we have a huge debt with them." But now it's like, "Oh, and they're like that our time, enemy." Obama started doing his pivot to Asia, um, which wasn't successful around that time. Yeah, it, I, I'm actually. It's going to be a very interesting. A century for Asia. Well, I don't know how much of a tangent you want to go on, but do you, have you guys been looking at what's happening in China in the last, like, well, the last few days, but especially like today? No, I haven't heard of anything going on in China. Oh uh, well, I mean, how much of a tangent do you want to go on, Jordan? No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on circling it back around, <laughs> but you can okay, go ahead I'll, again. Um, just to give you the elevator pitch, um, a major building company and real estate company that employs either directly or through contracts about 4 million people in China is looking like it's going to go bankrupt and that will have will likely have ripple effects into all their contractors all the people who bought homes from them that haven't been completed yet all the people who have invested in them all the banks that owe them money all the american banks that they owe money to um and there are some people worrying that like that Evergard, which is the company, is going to be China's Lehman Brothers. And oh, people have been talking for a while about the housing bubble in China and like when's it going to pop. And a lot of people are saying that it's like it's popping right now. Oh and, yes, I, I heard about that. Too. Yeah, so the like, Dow. Like, yeah, the Dow is down like three percent today. It was the, down um, nine hundred points or like nine thousand points. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. It was like crazy. 
Um, housing prices in China dropped, I think, 6% in one day. That's their biggest um, investment in the yeah. country, right? Average people is housing. So that's going to be really bad. Yeah. So some, some people are saying this could could be the beginning of a 2008-style financial crisis in yeah, China. But this, but but it's only going to affect China because unlike the one in 2008, it's a lot more. I don't know about that. Like if you look at like Thursday, Evergard has more interest payments due. And the ones they have due on Thursday are to foreign banks like BlackRock and UBS and HSBC. And so like there are foreign investors, there are foreign banks that they owe money to that could be affected by this. I mean, there's a reason the Dow fell three points today. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Uh, it's actually going to be really interesting to see because China has been. You, you're yeah, but anyway, let's circle back. <laughs> yeah, yes, it broke up anyways. Okay, yeah. Let, let's let's get it, back it, to um, – Shinji, you broke up, but I got I to gotta oh, get my... back to Hawaii. My bad. Oh um, uh, yeah, everything comes back to Hawaii. Usually, any <laughs> hell yeah Asia Pacific region. I'd love to go. Let's go. <laughs> uh, no, Sam, I wanted you to talk about the Hawaii Democratic Revolution, the labor unrest there, and some of the union activity going on. Oh yeah, um, as, as I told you that like most of the unions were among left lines, but in 1920, it was called the Great Oahu Sugar Strike. Was the first strike that employed both Hawaiian and Filipino, not Hawaiian, but Japanese and Filipino workers. Um, they got some concessions, but they didn't do very well, but they did much better than what happens usually. And in uh, the 1930s, the ILWU, the Longshoremen's and Warehouse Unions, International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, came to Hawaii. Well, a number of representatives came to Hawaii and uh, began unif what's called unified strikes among number of different ports. Um, this was led by a man named Harry Kamoku, who was the primary organizer on Hawaii. He's a Chinese Hawaiian. Um, he founded the Hawaii's Longshoremen's Association. And he led a number of strikes. And in 1938, um, he led a strike in Hilo, Hawaii, which later called the Hilo Massacre. And what happened here was uh, usually peaceful strikers. Um, the police would try to disperse them. They would gas them, and they'd regroup. They'd try spray them down with fire truck hoses and they'd regroup. And eventually around 10 a.m. they opened fire on the group. And many people were seriously injured. Um, but even though it's called a massacre, nobody died. But this this galvanized the population against the big five and the people who would shoot their own population. Yeah, I mean that's direct civil war. Yeah. Um, but some places you could, but it, what happened here was more union power. The unions had a strict nonviolent policy. They believed in, they were following the teachings of Gandhi, uh, of Ahimsa, um, and a number of other uh, different protest techniques. Uh, 
so they wouldn't arm themselves. And the Communist Party at the time were an informal collective who would often meet in homes and cars. Just letting you know, if you want to start your own revolutionary party, you don't need that much <laughs> to start with. That's based as fuck. <laughs> Just spreading around uh, co- communist. Yeah, you can start your own little communist party. Yeah, and they would um, they would get into leadership of the leadership of the labor organizations mm-hmm. and pull a number of unions together, and they'd try and uh, unify the plantations and uh, the um, and the dock workers. And but in nine. 19- when World War II started, they, for a number of reasons, specifically martial law, uh, they stopped the strikes. Um, they said to keep face that, you know, it was put on hold towards the war effort. But really, how could you strike when the military's on your doorstep 100%? They required fingerprints for all residents above the age of six. They imposed blackouts, curfews. They rationed food and gasoline. They censored the news and media. They prohibited alcohol. <laughs> uh, and the, many of the labor workers themselves were restricted from the docks because they were Japanese. A number of the labor or- workers were uh, put into internment camps and restricted from a number of places in which they once worked. Uh, this also had the effect of changing the ethnic makeup of the union leadership, when which used to be a lot of Japanese leaders suddenly fell off the power and a lot of uh, white leaders came into power who specifically chose to follow the path of um, statehood rather than independence. Um, but these, they did do huge, huge strikes after the war ended. What is called um, the Great Hawaiian Sugar Strike of 1946, which is one of the most expensive strikes in history. It involved almost all the plantations in Hawaii, to everybody walking off the job. No one's working the docks. No one's working the plantations. Uh, during this time, the strikers would create hunting and fishing communities to establish uh, food networks to help strikers on their family. They helped with transportation to get people where they need to. Food kitchens were set up. Badass mutual um, aid programs. Yeah, huge mutual aid programs. There were several like morale and entertainment committees uh, um, because many people were no longer receiving many wages, the unions made deals with landlords to keep the workers in their shacks. And they threatened anybody who evic- tried to evict them with their own power. So when the strike was over, not a single worker was evicted. It was huge. Like they would, That's it, awesome. This was one of the tactics that would be used in previous strikes was they would just – well, you can't strike no more. You got no food. You got you live on the street. You got to go back to work. But they created huge mutual aid networks to support this months months long strike. Um, they also put up a bunch of political candidates. Uh, the Republicans had controlled the territory for much of its history that was ruled by some um, Democratic governors who were basically Republicans. 
more anti-communist than the Republicans. Um, and after three, nearly four months, um, they won. They gained. Uh, they gained. Well, they gained seven nineteen cents per hour raise. <laughs> And uh, a 46-hour work week, which... What was um, it before? I think it was different for every ethnic group mm. and much lower. Right. Uh, the work week was <clears throat> nearly day, sun up, sun down. Yeah, whenever they wanted it to be, essentially. Yeah. Whenever You're off whenever they say. Well, after this strike, there's a couple other doctors other strikes. Uh, the dock strike um, made the United States create a whole new... Well, they did the dock strike during the beginning of the Korean War. <laughs> which That's another United war States that's not like, nearly talked about enough. Yeah. It's called uh, the Forgotten the War. Is like, no, you can't fucking strike during a war. We need these fucking ports. <laughs> it's illegal to make you strike during this war, and we're just gonna fire you all. Um, but the damage had been done for a lot of these plantations. Uh, they lost a lot of profit, and they never really recovered. They died a slow death. Many of them changed uh, industries to tourism or facilitating the military. Um, so these big five, there's still a few around. Uh, Castle and Cook changed hands and names, and they now control most of the big shipping companies that basically monopolize the islands. Um, but the sugar plantations themselves never recovered and died a slow death. Uh, and after this, um, the arguments for statehood really took front and center stage. It had been after World War II where we had been bombed. Uh, which I don't think Hawaii would have ever been bombed if we didn't colonize the Philippines, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> um, and uh, many of uh, the Asian Americans on the islands have proved their loyalty, basically. They didn't sell America out. Um, many of them fought on the front lines in Europe. Well, I mean, the idea that you have to prove your loyalty is kind of gross. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and one sixth of the pop, not one sixth of the population. Um, what was I gonna say? One third of the population was white. One third of the population's uh, Asian, and the rest is a mix of Native Hawaiians and Native Pacific Islanders. And so it was, and it was also easier for tourists to come to a state in the territory. And for all these reasons, uh, people of Hawaii were given a choice. Do you want to remain a territory or become a state? Independence was never an option. It's probably never going to be an option, even with as much labor unrest as it seemed. Um, they voted to become a state. Uh, many of Native Hawaiians abstained from voting. Uh, but 90% of the people who voted voted to become a state. 
Sam, how do you feel like living in Hawaii basically your entire life? Because I've only visited Hawaii one time. It's like 10 years ago. And Mm -hmm. when I was there, even though I was in a U.S. state, the entire time that I was there, it didn't feel like I was in the United States. So I was interested to see what your perspective is on that. Um. It was weirder when I visited the mainland and realized the cultural differences. Everybody looked at me like I was some crazy person for putting my slippers in front of the door. Like I'm supposed to drag mud through the fucking house. Yeah, my girlfriend actually grew up in Hawaii, and I learned the term slippers. When you guys are talking about slippers, you're talking about, quote-unquote, flip-flops. Yeah. Rubber slippers. (laughs) We call them here. Um... But the environment here is very different. There's a very different population and the way of living. It's much slower. Um, yeah, you're on uh, island time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's frustrating, but, you know, it's also very relaxing. <laughs> um, you, but, you, you said that there's, um, in our notes here, that there's two different types of nationalism that exists within Hawaii. Can you kind of just yes. like expand on that? Um, among the native population, there is um, the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, which is a huge umbrella term, honestly, but the major strain of the sovereignty movement is a pro-monarchist movement, which wants to bring back the monarchy and the Hawaiian position in the world. Now, which- why would you want to bring back a monarchy? Why wouldn't you want like a Hawaiian republic? Exactly. That see, it's a non-starter for most, especially Americans who came here, who have their huge myth in overthrowing a monarchy. In fact, that's why when the monarchy was overthrown, it was called a revolution to appeal to the Americans who overthrew a monarchy. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a conversation once with a Canadian who was talking about, um, like, a Canadian republic, because they're still technically the queen is their head of state. Um, and he, he said, you know, no one would ever, no one forming a government today would ever go, hey, let's make this new government a monarchy. And it's like, yeah, that, like, it, it seems so odd that anyone, foot. like, why would someone yeah. want to establish a new monarchy? Uh, well, it's uh, anti-colonial and um, wants to bring back power to a native group. Um it's I just can't traditional. Think you would want like a Hawaiian Republic, like I said. You would think you would want something like that. Is it just think, because it's but, like historic, like traditional to Hawaiian roots? Yeah, that's okay. exactly it. There's a history, uh, international relations connected with it. Um, but yeah, if you want to become your own nation, you you can start from scratch. You can do anything you want, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, like you could become anything why would you want to become but the monarchy is traditional it's what they know worked for their people um but again it's a non-starter for many of the white residents and also many of the asian residents here and so a lot of them look on that like are you kidding (laughs) yeah i mean i get it (laughs) Uh, but i also understand why they um, would like to bring it back too. Yeah, no, to understand all positions because it's very complex the relationship between 
uh, most of the population and the native Hawaiian population and the respect with sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Because again, like I said, the Hawaiian sovereignty is a big umbrella term in which the majority is the monarchist strain, but there's also the no state strain. There's also the pre uh, commandment strain. There's also the socialist strain made it much smaller, but they exist. And so how popular are these? Not very. <laughs> uh, but the socialist strain is what overlaps with what I would call uh, local nationalism, which is a nationalism born of basically the plantation period with all these different cultures coming together, creating a new uh, language, a new way of interacting with each other. Um, and this is usually based upon a feeling of, uh, of tradition among Hawaiian Island people, uh, social ties that are perhaps opposed to those of the US mainland, a uh, sense of being politically deprived uh, as inferior grade of citizen, and a sense of uh, being economically exploited for our culture at our place. And but when you have nothing, don't have sugar, all you have is like the body, you have the environment, you have the culture, so you sell that. Uh, Hanani Trask called it the whoring out of culture, is tourism. Are these mostly among the native uh, native Hawaiians? Um, no, yes and no. Um, that's why I called this the, the local nationalism instead of native nationalism. Uh, this is among like all national groups, but again, this is a much even small, this is a small group of people though, who even understand the difference between native nationalism and no, local nationalism. Sam, you presented a, an interesting question uh, I, here. For... Uh, sorry, did you have something to say? Oh, oh, I was yeah, just going to say, I. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I know the delay. All right. Yeah, that sucks. Okay. Anyways, I was just going to say, Sam, you presented an interesting question for the group. You, you said, how should leftists interact with potentially reactionary native nationalist movements? Mm. Ian and Shinji, what do you guys yes. think about that? So, I think that I think it's a very interesting question. Um, and one thing that I've been thinking a lot is like, I look at the you know the far right in America and the left in America. I understand where the far right is coming from because like I think that the left and the far right we both look at the current system and say like okay well this is clearly unacceptable and this can't go on it's like I'm like I understand how someone gets to the far right more than I understand how someone is centrist um and me too like I talked earlier about how nationalist and anti-colonialist movements and socialist movements are often like very often can be allies but like think about the way we usually talk about nationalism um we don't usually when in america at least when we talk about nationalism we're not usually talking about like irish nationalists or hawaiian nationalists or whatever anti-colonial nationalists 
Um, no, we're typically talking about like Nazi Germany or fascism. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, I think that the way you should interact with, I'll, I'll, I'll say far right, because, you know, far right and reactionary, those often like go together, but they're not the same thing. Um, the way you should interact with far right people or far right movements, I guess, is that I think we have the same base of potential recruits. But once they go over that way, I don't think there's, I, I don't think they can often be pulled back. And I don't think it's like an efficient use of resources to try to to pull people from the far right to the um, to the left. Uh, you know, I actually read this pamphlet recently that's by this guy who was part of a Serbian movement that overthrew Slobodan Milosevic. And he drew this spectrum of allies where it's like active supporters, passive supporters, neutrals, passive opponents and active opponents. And he said the idea was to try to get everyone to move one step towards you. So you weren't trying to get your active opponents to be active supporters. You were trying to get your active opponents to be passive opponents and try to get your passive opponents to be neutrals and try to get the neutrals to be, you know, get everyone to move one step. But I think we're like drawing from the same pool of people that realize that the system is fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of right wingers uh, I've noticed can diagnose that there's a problem, but they go about it in a completely different, like, they, okay, I wouldn't say diagnose. They realize that there's a problem, but their diagnosis is a completely different one from ours. You know, like, we, we look at it, like, from a class point of view. They see it more as, like, a nation or racial or ethnic point of view, and it's, like, unfortunate. <laughs> because it, you know, and it's hard to make them understand that, like, it, it's yeah, it's why it, it's why a lot of like really dumbass lefties will fall for the rhetoric of Tucker Carlson. Yeah, the the Nazbull vortex. Yeah, like fucking Glenn Greenwald. He called him a socialist. I I knew some people when I was going to college um, uh, that literal fascists like but they wouldn't call themselves fascists they were like oh we're not i'm like a, i'm like a syndicalist and a nationalist you know like and i'm like oh so you're like a phalangist and they're like oh i don't know what that is but and then i explained it to them and they're like oh yeah that sounds based <laughs> i'm like so you're a fascist and they're like yeah but but it's I, I, it's all about the class, bro. I'm like, no, you like this was the argument a lot of like these people uh, told me was I don't like capitalism, but I love my country, and it's like I I kind of see how they could come to that conclusion, even if I completely disagree with it. But like, I think they just don't aren't are not properly like examining the real issue, and they're just surface level being like, well. It has to be these minorities because what else could it be, you know? Yeah. 
it, it's why like you, you've probably seen that meme guys that's like if um if we just called it like american with socialist characteristics or something oh, yeah yeah socialism <laughs> with american characteristics. yeah yeah that's what it is socialism with american characteristics we could actually get like right-wing reactionaries onto our side well also and take us yeah and take you well, no, the right-wing reactionaries could get the tankies onto their side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if it was actually socialism and we, and we said it had American characteristics, that's how we get the right-wing uh, people on our side. They're just like shaking Stop giving hands. them ideas. So based. <laughs> okay, guys. Um, I wanted to change topics. Um, we'll, we'll wrap it up here in like 15 minutes. Um, but I wanted to ask you what do we think that the role of the military should be in a socialist society? Well, depends. Uh, depends if it's an international, like if we've achieved some level of internationalism mm -hmm. or if it's like a and, early and stages, like one country has achieved it or more or less. Well, I think that's like the number one thing. Um, practically speaking, I think like, I, I don't, I'm not on the impression that, the whole world's gonna see the lights all at once. Yeah. Um, so definitely, like, it'll be one country at a time. Right, right. Um, and, and we've laid out extensively, like, throughout this entire episode, militaries, especially imperialist militaries, have historically always been overwhelmingly traditionalist, right-wing, and reactionary. And these are these tendencies are obviously antithetical to what we're looking for in a socialist society. So here's my... I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back against that. Because I think like a lot of a lot of the time it's true, and a lot of time the military, like you said, is very traditional. I don't think it always has been. Like for instance, um, in the Russian Revolution, um, that is a great example where the military turned on the czar, um, or in the German Revolution where the military, uh, well, at least a lot of the military supported the a socialist revolution in Germany. Um, and I think that if you look at... Oh, are those imperialist militaries? Yes. Yes, those were imper the imperial German military and the imperial Russian military. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the German military was very reactionary, very conservative. But, like, during the German Revolution, like, it was started by the Navy. You know, the German Navy mutinied at Kiel, and that's what started that revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you look at the military they are proletarian like they work for wages they don't they don't make their money by owning things and like they disproportionately are poor usually um black and brown people who are joining the military because it's an economic solution yeah usually. that's certainly the case in the united states and in many parts of the united states um joining the military is the only source of employment mm -hmm. yep. So, like, I definitely think that the people who are in the military, um, and that's why I think that it's good when people make a distinction between military action and the military, because the people who are in the military, like, they're working class people. They're the mm -hmm. people we're trying to fight for. Exactly. Um, and so... Yeah, we're fighting the military-industrial complex. Yeah, yeah, like, we're fighting we're fighting the capitalist use of the military imperialism yeah mm -hmm. well it's just like if a person is working on an oil rig like we don't hate that person 
that person's just doing a job. Right. We, we hate, hate the industry. We like, yeah, we hate the industry. Um, and so I think that's a very important distinction to make that a lot of people don't make. And I think that, I mean, like, let's be honest. I'm, I want to get you kicked off of Apple Podcasts, but like, capitalists are never going to just give up capitalism without I mean, a fight. I mean, I think it would have already <laughs> happened already. I'm an anarchist podcaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're never going to give up capitalism without a fight. And um, if you don't, if you don't get some people with guns over to your side, you're going to have a tough time launching a revolution guys. <laughs> yeah. And like anarchists have had military, right? the black army, though loose was a military the cnt and the spanish revolution loosely organized was still a military uh not like anarchists are averse to having some sort of armed force to protect themselves as many tankies like to believe exactly um mm -hmm. and i also learned when i was doing some research for this the red army provided the largest land force in the allied victory in the entire european theater of the second world war Oh, yeah, like Russia and China both do not get the credit they deserve. Um, I'm I'm doing this off the top of my head, so these numbers might be a little bit off. But I think like 70% of Japanese casualties were inflicted by the Chinese, and like 75% of the Japanese army was stationed in China. And as many German soldiers died at Stalingrad as on the entire Western Front. Yeah, and I, I really think if Nazi Germany and the Soviets would have kept their alliance, if Hitler wouldn't have, you know, double-crossed Stalin, that that would have been a very, very difficult war to win. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you can even say that you're winning a war, but you guys know what I mean. Yeah, That's a nice but, but I think the question was, the question is not like, should the military exist under socialism? The no, like how should it operate? And... Like, I think the obvious answer is that the military is there to defend, to like, to defend the proletarian movement. The military is there to prevent, you know, like, historically speaking, whenever a country has had a revolution, very often you've had capitalist powers coming in and trying to bay of pigs them or whatever mm -hmm. <laughs> and like the military is there largely for that yeah um, I, I wrote in my notes here i see the military as you know largely being used as a counter defense against like you said a pro-capitalist and likely a fascistic force now I think, oh go ahead now i um i wonder what you think i think about the use so like Bill Clinton, for instance, got a lot of criticism for not intervening in the Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you guys think about using the military in something like that? Oh, I think it's a slippery slope. It is. That, that puts two things on a scale of anti-imperialism or anti-fascism or anti-genocide. And which one do you value more? And it's very hard question to answer right we tried to use a humanitarian argument in the case of iraq yeah or and cuba no doubt saddam was awful but what we did he was, was not an imminent threat to the united states yeah mm -hmm. <clears throat> so. and then here maybe i'll just like here i'll throw a couple of scenarios at you 
and talk about how you think that would fit into a the military and our social society. Um, what about World War II? That's generally considered like that's the war that people you can't be against, right? What do you guys? <laughs> how would that if America had been a socialist country? Do we react the same way? Well, we definitely have to take a large stance. The Soviet Union. Yeah, that's for sure. We would have to be friendlier with the Soviet Union yeah. we'd to um, partner with them to try to knock out Nazi Germany. Uh, fuck. Maybe even help what? with the rebels in Spain more. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What do we do when 9-11 happens? If we're a socialist country, we call everyone terrorists and go after them like the Uyghur population. We don't, we don't invade the wrong country and people who are not responsible for it. Um, is the simplest answer, I guess. Yeah. Um, um. So, like, what do you guys think the structure should be? Like, what, how, what decision-making structure do you think? should make those decisions. I'll go ahead and say, I think a national referendum mm-hmm. for, um, yeah, I, my first instance is say declaration of war, but people just don't use that. But a national referendum for military action, I think is a good idea. Yeah, I would um, also say that we, we obviously have to keep it a voluntary system so that we don't have like some involuntary hierarchy that develops in terms of the military. Uh, it'd be it'd be fucking based if we were able to unionize the military yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's difficult to deal with the military because in it of itself is such a hierarchical thing like during battle you got to listen to your commanders right and we should also i think we should also talk about like when we when we discuss socialism and the military, oftentimes people associate that with, you know, like military parades running down the street or pro-imperial regimes. When we're talking about our brand of socialism, we obviously would not be looking for that. We're looking for something that just is acting as a counter defense against the capitalist forces. And on top of that, I would, I also see the military as continuing to be a role in engaging actively in humanitarian affairs domestically and abroad, especially in terms of like natural disasters responding Mm -hmm. to that. Like national guard kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Red cross. Those, those kind of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also should say that when we're talking about socialism, it's not the end goal. It's a stage in history. In fact, it's the transitional stage between capitalism and communism. You know, I think that's something that capitalists never understand. And another thing is that, like, no one thinks that socialism will be perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, no one is saying that. So, like, capitalists will always be like, oh, well, this will still be a problem. And I'm like, yeah, keyword still, (laughs) as in it is a problem (laughs) currently. And it's like, yeah, like no one's saying that socialism will solve every problem in the world, just that it will solve a lot of the problems in the world. Like it's not perfect, it's better. 
Yeah, exactly. And I would also add on top of that, I think we should just apply historical materialism to this, which is the Marxian principle that essentially states that the doctrine of all forms of social thought, art or philosophy, where um, economic relations and altered or modified result of class struggles, where everything is related to one another as a as a section of history. <clears throat> These things are all interrelated. <clears throat> Uh, specifically with the definition, it says each ruling class produces the class that will destroy or replace it. Dialectical necessity requires the eventual withering away of the state and the establishment of the classless society, which is what I'm talking about. It's a stage that we're constantly working towards. <clears throat> and then I would also add on top of that with, with regards to imperialism, Imperialism does predate capitalism. You know, there was imperialism during feudalism. However, capitalism, as long as capitalism exists, imperialism will exist. <clears throat> so as long as there's a constant hunger for profits that needed to be pursued in foreign markets and resources, there will always be imperialism. And I, I presented this question on Twitter, and I think I asked it in the first part of the episode, but I said... Um, is imperialism the highest stage of capitalism? And I honestly don't know. I feel like it could be one of the highest stages of capitalism near the top, but there's no doubt that it massively exa is exacerbated by the demands of capital. I agree. Um, yeah. You guys have any uh, final thoughts? Imperialism bad. <laughs> United States bad. Yeah, I got a quote from Che to read right here real quick. It says, Our every action is a battle cry against imperialism and a battle hymn for the people's unity against the great enemy of mankind, the United States of America. Here, here. Well, well now I feel depressed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. We should, we, should, we should just be teaching this and talking about this. But do you guys have anything that I mean, you want to plug? Uh, my Twitter. You should follow my Twitter. He's it's, popular. Uh, the Cuban. <laughs> Yeah, usually I would plug my YouTube channel, um, but I also have, uh, I feel like my uh, mostly liberal Twitter followers have not been engaging in my tweets as much recently. So also follow my Twitter at IanCST, that's I-A-N-C-S-T. I don't have a Twitter. Um, I don't have much of one. Thanks. God bless you. A, <laughs> <laughs> I have a band camp if you want to check out my band. It's one album that uh, Step on the People. Uh, band camp uh, beyond that no 805 uncensored is on youtube we're on twitter instagram um, wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to list any episode ideas or have any guests that you'd like to suggest you can email us at 805 uncensored at gmail.com and that's all i have for you guys i appreciate it and sam i learned a fucking lot about hawaii thanks for that Thanks for having me on. I learned a lot about Cuba. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Shinji. I learned a lot about Cuba as well. And uh, Ian, I love getting your perspective on Asian Pacific countries. So thanks again for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I hope you guys have a great rest of your night, and I'll be sure to send you a copy once it's posted. Thank you, awesome. man. All right. Peace have out. Great night. Yeah. Take care, y'all. Good night, guys. Later. Bye.